Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer and try Peloton risk-free with Peloton Rentals at onepeloton.com slash bike slash rentals. Welcome to the Market Maker Podcast, hosted by me, Anthony Chung, where every Friday I talk to a member of the team about what happened in markets this week. From macro themes and single stock news to cryptocurrencies and careers in finance, our aim is simple to make finance interesting and easy to understand for everyone. So let's get to it. Hello and welcome to episode 67 of the Market Maker podcast and Piers and I together again to just shoot the hoops and see what's been going on in the world of finance and yeah, quite a few different things actually to touch upon uh, rather than any one specific thing. So my plan of action is I'm going to go through potentially about eight different kind of highlights of the week and then Piers, feel free to jump in at any point you see fit. Uh, and say your piece if you have a view or an opinion, and uh, I'm sure that will contradict with my own. But before <laughs> I begin, uh, Morgan Stanley, we were there um, at their EMEA HQ in London on Friday, so it was yeah fantastic to meet some of the summer analysts that are going to be joining us uh, in the coming weeks and months. So yeah, shout out to everyone that I met, and I apologize if I didn't get the chance to get round to everyone, um, but we will, we'll have time. But uh, Piers, did you enjoy the event? Yeah, it's great. Uh, just, well, just to get get people together, isn't it? And just, uh, I guess for me, it was like that was the start of the summer last Friday. You know, it starts. It's now tangible. It's real. You know, we spent so long kind of building up and preparing for our big summer. This is as a business. This is where um, we run a lot of our programs and there's a hell of a lot that goes on in the planning it's just nice to see the sort of well see the start line i guess right in that all that hard work is going to start to get delivered and then this is where the real the real benefit the joy of it all is just actually you know seeing you know young eager bright minds you know enter into the uh the kind of world of finance via our simulations and like they're kind of wide-eyed and you know maybe 
a little bit naive, not for their own fault, because they're young and they're, you know, they've never had a taste, right? And it's just churning that kind of naive enthusiasm and polishing and honing it into, you know, a real proper set of skills that, that you know, can, can prepare them for life on, on places like the trading floor. Um, so, yeah, really, really good to meet these guys. And, yeah, looking forward to working with them. Well, in, in preparation, then let's let's talk about some of the things that have been going on in markets because part of the key theme was about them starting to have that mindset now about being curious in the world of what's going on around them and how that connects then to financial markets. And we'll we'll start in the UK. There's been a plenty to go at. Uh, obviously, Boris Johnson has dominated the headlines uh, again. But today we're recording this on Thursday, the 26th. The Chancellor. Rishi Sunak has announced a windfall tax on oil and gas companies amid this cost of living crisis. And you've got to love politics comes the day after the Sue Gray report <laughs> comes out condemning the Johnson government. Uh, Rishi comes out again, uh, the, the kind of savior to, to give away some more um, of the big corporations income, let's say, to, to the wee man. Yeah, but yeah. this isn't the only thing that's been going on in, in the UK. It's the UK private sector growth, as measured by some economic data known as the Services PMI, the Purchase and Managers Index, that slumped earlier this week to its weakest since the winter of 2021 lockdown. So real evidence then that the cost of living crisis is really starting to hurt customer demand in May. Were you shocked by that number at all, Piers, when you saw it? I mean, it was a big miss. Um, I was, well, I, I mean, I, I'm of a bearish persuasion, especially on the UK. So when bad stuff happens, it's like, okay, that's in line with what, where my head's at. And so, um, surprised is not the word. Uh, yeah, maybe surprised at the magnitude by which it dropped, uh, but certainly not surprised by the direction. Yeah, I saw, um... Goldman's came out and after actually um, the regulators said that they're going to increase again, a bit more visibility about the October tariff price increases right. that will happen on the energy front. And they've upgraded their UK year-on-year uh, -year inflation to peak at 10.6%, I think they said, in October. So 10.6 yes. now is what we're, what we're looking at. It's got the, it's yeah, phenomenal. I mean, that, well, that's it's crazy, isn't it? And I guess this is what, this is what Rishi's handout is all about, right? And I, so what I'd say about this Rishi, um, UK Chancellor's sort of um, move today, you know, there's the skeptic side, which would analyze it as this is bribing the electorate. You know, they've been partying throughout lockdown, boozing away, the electorate's pissed off with them, right? Let's appease them by throwing cash at them. Right. That's and, and, you know, the timing is, of course, as you said, just as the Sue Gray report is getting is released. And so it's all back on the front pages. So and also it's about the least um, kind of right wing. It's the least conservative policy you could ever possibly think up. In fact, it's so it's kind of extreme left wing kind of stuff. This is where, you know, windfall tax on the energy companies to distribute the money to the to the kind of lower income it's classic left um so that's what makes this even more 
kind of hilarious on the one hand, but on the other hand, it's phenomenally serious, this crisis, this cost of living crisis in the UK, particularly um, with spiking gas prices. It's just going to be an absolute killer. This is the key reason why I'm so bearish on the UK second half and certainly the final quarter of the year. It's just going to be, I mean, really, crisis disaster is not, they're, they're words that aren't, you know, overstating it. And I think this government move is the right move. Um, timing, questionable, um, you know, and selfish motives, perhaps, but I think it's the, it's the right thing to do. Um, so, is there, there long-term implications for corporations in the oil and gas sector having to right. now pay this penalty and being held, let's say, ransom? They don't have a choice here, really. Well, and so do, yeah. is there implications longer term for investment from these firms and their relationship with the UK government? So this is the key problem. And this is why the Conservatives have been holding back and holding back. And ooh, should we do this? Should we not do this? Look, this, isn't, this hasn't come out of the blue, this thing. Labour have been banging on about this for months, right? That the government should be implementing this plan. So they've been dragging their feet on it. And the big issue is, yeah, it sets a precedent. You know, once it's done once, it's like, okay, you know, is that the kind of go-to move for future governments? And what does that then mean for investment? Go, you know, these energy companies investing in, you know, growth. And so one thing, one thing in the small print here of this. So basically, the, ha the headline is that the UK government will have announced a temporary 25% energy profit levy on, on profits of oil and gas companies. Okay. But um, Sunak said that in order to ensure that investment is not impaired by the new levy, Companies that invest will get tax relief on 80% of that spending. So that's the small print. And in a way, they've kind of, hopefully, they've kind of got the balance right here between, yeah, look, these companies have got disgusting profits coming in, whilst the average person on the street is, you know, is going to really struggle. That's not fair. All right, let's correct that. But let's not kind of destroy our energy sector the future of one of the you know, most important sectors for our economy, right? In terms of job creation and our, you know, being, you know, in this era where we want to become less energy dependent on others, you know, if you're going to then kind of steal cash from the coffers of uh, UK energy firms, then, you know, that, that's obviously going to, that, that's an exact, that, that's a very negative factor for that initiative to, to become energy um, independent. So there's a lot of nuances to this, but yeah. Probably it's the right call. Do you think uh, Theresa May would still be in office now if that report came out and she was PM? No. We'll move on. <laughs> <laughs> um, honestly, let's move on. <laughs> we'll be here a long time. Um, China's premier came out overnight and called an emergency meeting with thousands of different representatives from local governments, state-owned companies, financial firms, calling on them to do more to stabilize growth. Um, actually, in the overnight session, Chinese equities actually rallied when, when this event was taking place. It backed off a little bit by the close, but it's the first kind of time that they've made the admission that, yeah, things are pretty tough at the moment, almost like they're trying to 
manage expectations around growth and the context being that economist surveys continue to downgrade the Chinese outlook, just given the severity of the impact from the zero COVID kind of policies. Um, so that, that was overnight. However, I did also read and the slightly more positive um, element was Shanghai's port, which is one of the largest in China. Uh, I saw a statistic that it's operating now at 95.3% of its normal level. So almost fully recovered from the effects yeah. of, of, of the, the lockdown. Uh, I've seen some contradictory data, so some high-frequency indicators. This is when we start looking at more like mobility-type um, information on a granular level to give us a bit more intel on the ground of what are things really like rather than backward-looking data. And that is still kind of indicating a bit mixed picture. But yeah, any thoughts on the... I know we've been quite bearish of late on China, but the move by, I guess, China to, to change tact a little bit? Yeah, well, I'm definitely surprised by that. Like really surprised. I mean, I've never seen anything like that before. I think it's really healthy. I think it's quite telling, though, that this is you know this is the Xi Jinping show. It, you know, it, to all intents and purposes, I mean, am I allowed to say it? It's not far off a dictatorship, right? And this is the first sign that maybe he's like actually, maybe we haven't navigated through this as best as we might have done. And look, let's perhaps get your ideas, guys. Come around, you know, what, what do you think? You know, I, I think that in principle is a very healthy direction. Um, so, but you could say, well, hang on, if it's got to that extreme that Xi Jinping's now kind of stepping back and admitting fault and like looking for other ideas, you, you could say that's a clear sign indication that their economy is in much worse trouble than they're letting on or that we currently think. Um, but as you say, to entirely contradict that, the Shanghai port's almost back up to full capacity. So it's like, you know, has, has the worst of it, are we over the worst with regards to Omicron lockdowns in China? But I guess with their zero COVID policy, you know, who's to say there isn't another, you know, COVID strain around the corner that's going to, you know, and whilst countries that are fully vaccinated, like Europe, you know, are now seemingly quite happy to just chug through it without, you know, restrictions, you know, with China, that, that that's always going to be the risk as we go through the second half of this year, and who knows, into next year and the year after, who knows how long this thing goes on for, right? So, um, so yeah, it, it's 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 an interesting one, but certainly I'd I'd say that you know that those Shanghai port activities definitely a really strong positive, and that's for the whole planet, you know, because one of the key contributors to the inflation problem, which has dominated everything, um, one of the key contributors is is the supply chain issues that are as a result of what's going on in China. Yeah. I was just having a look at um, a chart that Eddie shared uh, yesterday, and it was looking at the new export orders in the manufacturing PMIs. Mm. Um, and China's manufacturing service sectors contracting at their fastest rate in over two years. Everything's on the downturn right now. But maybe that could act as a nice hook for there's two very distinguished gentlemen on Wall Street <laughs> who might well take the other side of that and say there's not so much 
cause for concern, perhaps, yeah, to remain vigilant. But perhaps this idea about full-on, full-blown recession is a bit overdone. So yeah. who are these two chaps? Uh, you might have heard of them. Uh, Jamie Dimon and Brian Moynihan. Um, if you haven't heard of these people, well, you need to up your game. Uh, Google them. Obviously, Jamie Dimon is the, the godfather of Wall Street. Um, uh, the head of JP Morgan, of course, for a decade plus, um, and, and Moynihan's the head of Bank of America. But both, interestingly, both of these guys have been on TV this week. Um, I think CNBC and Bloomberg or something like that. But anyway, I've been you know, quite vocal and, and actually bucking the trend. Whilst we're in this climate of incredibly negative sentiment where you know, the, the media are feeding on crisis story after crisis story, and it's you know, it's often hard to, to have a clear, rational mindset in amongst this crisis. But I think Diamond came out and said, look, the consumer's in very good shape, is what he said. Now, he's talking about the US consumer. I thought, I thought, that, was, uh, I thought that was Trump describing Macron's wife. <laughs> Do you remember that? <laughs> Great shape. Oh, God, Donald Trump. Wow. <laughs> Imagine if he comes back. Anyway, um, so great shape. That's let's what, not think great about shape that. economy is what they're saying. So the he said the consumer's in great shape. Okay. Um, he said that this is Jamie Dimon, um, and he said that um, if we go into recession, it may be a different. It may be different than prior recessions. He said, "Look, we've got a strong economy, but there's big storm clouds." I'm kind of quoting here, and he said, "I'm calling them storm clouds because they may dissipate." And he said, if it was a hurricane, I would tell you that. Now, if I thought these clouds are actually a hurricane, I'd tell you. If I thought it was a tsunami, I'd tell you. He said, it's not like 07 and 08. He said, credit looks really good. And then his um, chief financial officer made some interesting points around uh, credit card loans. Because obviously these banks, there's a few strings to their bow, right, in terms of how they're generating revenues and obviously the credit card side of things is one of one of those key ones and these and one of the things they um they they track is write-offs in card loan portfolios so basically bad debt this is where consumers run up credit card debt and then they they can't pay it and they default essentially right so so then the bank has to write off that money and write-offs in card loan portfolios were running at about half the historical rate so that's obviously a very positive thing, but you might say to me, well, that's because obviously Joe Biden dropped a massive check on everyone's doorstep. So yeah, fair. Um, but he said that we're now projecting that the unusually low level of card, card charge-offs will persist into next year. So they're, they're saying that the consumer's in, in strong shape. Um, and that's why Diamond's basically saying this recession may be different. What he means was he's, he's implying that it will be a softer recession because the consumer isn't in as bad shape as you might ordinarily see in a recession. Moynihan backed this up by talking about not credit cards, but talking about their customers in Bank of America, their, their bank accounts. Um, so their savings and their checking accounts, as the US call them. And, and he was saying that the money in accounts right now is still uh, at a greater amount than before the pandemic. So even though we've had this inflation spike now that's almost a year old, 
right? Well, it is a year old, right? We've had this really high intense inflation. Actually, custom, uh, consumers have still got more money now than they did before the pandemic. And he's saying that just tracking May um, in terms of bank account levels, um, consumers are spending about the rate of 10% more in May 2022 than they did in 2021. Um, and he's saying that, look, they're, they're in really good shape. And he's asking what's going to slow them down. And he says nothing right now was his response. So, look, you've got the bank. And this is really interesting intel because, you know, we as like economists or analysts, we might look at things like consumer confidence data. OK, and that's very prone to be very volatile because it's much more influenced by people's um, emotions, right? If you're asked the question as a consumer, how do you feel about your personal situation and you've been reading the doomsday stuff in the press, then you're going to give an opinion that's influenced by that, okay? But what we're hearing from these bank giants is actually forget about irrational, emotional reaction. The cool hard facts are people have got more money than they had two years ago and they're spending it. And that that's they're not in, and it's not looking like they're going to run out anytime soon, is the point. To play devil's advocate, I do know that JP Morgan's US equity strategist is the biggest bull US equities on the street. Right. And Morgan Stanley have been talking up the recession, having increased their odds significantly, and they're the biggest bear on the street. Yeah. So. I guess what you've got to have a breadth of reading to understand then what the consensus is and the rationale behind what drives each view to then land in a spot where you feel is. Both can be right. Mm. The, the, the nuance of language here, you've got to be careful with because did Jamie Dimon's not saying there will not be a recession. Yeah. He's actually saying he said there probably will be a recession, but it's going to be different to usual, as in not as bad. So Morgan Stanley could be right in that there's going to be a recession, but Diamond's saying, look, don't panic. It's not going to be too bad. One thing he did say today that I saw, and uh, I know you're not prepped for this, but an interesting comment is that digital assets have replaced real estate as a preferred alternative asset class, according to JP Morgan on a note yesterday. That's their alternative investment outlook strategy. Right. Interesting. I mean, the thing about real estate, because that's one of the key kind of data points from this week, Hmm. where there's been bad news, was the housing numbers out of the US were really bad. And you can't, so there's actually so much contradiction going on at the moment. Right. Yeah. Hang on. The consumer is really strong, but look, the housing market is really weak. What PMIs have dropped sharply, yeah. but mm. hang on. The Shanghai ports just reopened. Um, there's so much conflict, so it makes it really hard. I think the housing number makes sense because you've got to, you've got to think about what is actually happening, what is actually changing, and what elements of the economic system are most influenced by that. And so housing, look, mortgage rates have just sharply spiked because the Fed have got super uber hawkish and are raising at 50 clips and they're going to continue raising at 50 clips moving forwards, right? So the mortgage rates have gone through the roof. Now, what happens like in America, I mean, maybe people don't quite appreciate this, but if you want to move house, then let's say you're in a house now 
and you're paying a mortgage rate, let's say you've got a two-year fixed rate that you agreed two years ago and it's like 3%, okay? Maybe you've got a five-year fix and it's, and it's, let's say it's 2%, right? Five-year fixed rate. If you want to now move house, then basically the new property you buy, the mortgage company comes in and revalues, you know, values that and blah, blah, blah. And basically in most situations, you then have to change rate. So you have to get a new mortgage essentially, but then your interest rate is going to go from two to 5%. So actually to move house, you're basically massively increasing your debt um, costs, right? So a lot of people are going, well, okay, I'm not going to move. So obviously that then impacts on the level of deals being done in the housing market. And that's feeding through to very negative housing market data makes complete sense. Hmm. But that doesn't mean that the consumer is in serious trouble and is going to stop spending on the high street because their bank accounts are really full. But Again, contradiction. Here's another contradiction for you. Um, we had we talked about it on the pod at length last week. Uh, Walmart and Target, the two big retailers in the US, came out with shocking guidance and forecasts for the year ahead, and they're really struggling. Profit margins, which are really tight, are looking quite vulnerable. So, you know, doomsday, another leg down in the stock market. Macy's reported last night another big US retailer, and really positive about their outlook, increased their profit expectations for the second half of 2022. Share price popped like 14%. And you're like, well, hang on a minute. What? I thought, hang on, Walmart's doom and gloom and Target's disaster. And now Macy's are like, what What are you talking about? We're doing really well. So again, massive contradiction. But if you kind of look under the bonnet of it into Macy's report, they're basically saying that the reason why they're doing well is because there's been an increased spending on luxury items. Um, so I think, again, it's that story of who is, who's suffering here? And it's not the rich. The rich are not suffering and they're out buying their Gucci. But the, the lower income are getting massively squeezed by this, you know, especially like food inflation and energy inflation. You know, this is where half of their income gets spent. And, and if those, if the cost there is like through the roof, then that has a real material impact on their behavior as a consumer. So they're going to Walmart and spending less. Hmm. But you're rich who the proportion of household income that gets spent on you know, they're obviously they're having to pay for energy and they're having to pay for food as well, but it's a it's a smaller fraction of their income, so they don't feel it as much. So they still go trot down to Macy's and buy the Gucci. So you're getting this massive an increase in the division, the the, the wealth divide is yet again stretching even further, and that's been the theme of the last hmm. fifteen years. Sounds like a, years. a recipe for political change on the horizon yeah and and that you know and, and that change has been happening right consistently mm. yeah. with from the brexit and the trumps and yeah it's just what's next mm. in that political trend um maybe it's trump 2.0 well look, Donald back in town talking about politics and geopolitics then let's come out of the u.s and let's go and jump in the in the, the hotbed that is Saudi Arabia and Russia 
on on the oil side because one of the things that came to light this week is Saudi Arabia have signaled that it will stand by Russia, which is obviously a little bit, again, as, as per the common theme in this podcast episode, a bit contradictory because the rest of the world obviously is tightening sanctions on Moscow, um, potential EU ban on Russian oil imports, so on and so forth. But Saudi are saying, no, we'll stand by Russia. Um, and that being stand by them as a member of OPEC plus group of oil producers. Um, but I guess we should explain. There's a couple of reasons why that has to be. They don't really have a choice here, right? Um, context, I'd say timing is key because the original agreement that they put in place of what they have at the moment, this supply pact agreement to review on a monthly basis the amount of supply there is amongst all these OPEC plus countries, that was enactioned on April 2020. Right. And it was supposed to end bum, 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 this summer. <laughs> and so it's about to expire. And so that then leads to the second point, which is there is no OPEC. There is no OPEC plus. There is no controlling of oil prices unless Russia is involved, involved and no one knows that better than Saudi Arabia. So yep. despite the alignment for many multitude of reasons Saudi needs with the West, namely the U.S., they know that if Russia just splinters and goes, goes rogue, that's a huge problem for them. So I don't know, to me, um, very unsurprising to hear that stance issued. But yeah, any thoughts on so that? What, so what you're saying then is that this is, like from an oil price point of view alone, this is actually the best possible maneuver. And just because if, if Saudi didn't pander to Russia and keep them sweet and keep them on side, and basically sort of fracturing of this OPEC plus partnership, then actually all deals are off the table. And that would probably lead to a spike in oil prices if there's no agreement around production increases and so on. Is that what well, you're saying? I, I think if, uh, well, in a way, it's almost the other way around where Russia is at the moment capped like all um, agreed nations within that, call it cartel, and so with Russia at the moment in its economic plight, could easily say to China, right, how many barrels do you want? How about we double down? I'll give you double and we'll throw your buddy India in the mix. And so we'll start pumping 20 million. And just to get over the economic sanctioning and yeah, China would be like, yes, please. We'll buy but then that that'll just exacerbate the, let's say that the fraught kind of relationship between the US and China it's just kind of accelerating that geopolitical divergence. Yep. And at the end of that road, that's, that's not something, that's not a destination we want to find out about. So, <laughs> oh, no, for sure. But I think point, the point being with oil is that um, I think it's in both those parties' interests, namely Saudi and Russia, that they work in unison with one another to have at least the best amount of control possible. Yeah to manipulate the price of oil, essentially. Well, yeah, I mean, the price has gone up. Um, uh, like, we're just kind of, you know, above, well, actually, um, WTI crude, this is literally the highest we've been since the start of March now. So we're, we're slowly but surely edging. Out. It's quite an important move here today because we're just, if anybody can get an eyes on, on a chart, basically, 
big spikes of the upside that happened at the end of Feb and the start of March when the Russia-Ukraine thing kicked off. And for WTI, it spiked from $90 to $120. Then it kind of came back off. And ever since then, we've been consolidating around, let's just say, around 100 bucks. The range has been sort of 95 to 110 consolidation, consolidation. And what's happened this week and today, it's just now ticked up out of this consolidation range to the upside. So certainly from a technical point of view, you'd probably say we're on the way back, on the way back to $120 here. And, you know, as in resuming the uptrend that was kind of, well, we've been in for a long time, by the way, but this uptrend that was accelerated by Russia, Ukraine, it looks like we, we may well now have a decision on direction and it's back to the upside. So yeah, if anything, this news flow has just uh, brought in some more buying power. And obviously that plays negatively into the whole, the whole global inflation mm. cost of living crisis. So you do have to keep an eye on oil again, now that it's on the way back up. Cause just, you know, if you think, let's say in the next few weeks, I'm just speculating, but let's say you do get this drive high, let's say it breaks above 120 and moves on up. Then it's like, just going to be adding fuel to the fire of, of this, this whole inflation situation. Okay. So going into the final kind of segment, let's talk a little bit central banking. We had the FOMC minutes, uh, probably talk about that less than the ECB. So for the FOMC minutes, officials agreed at their gathering this month, earlier in the month, that they need to raise interest rates in half point steps at the next two meetings. If you follow markets, closely that's completely as expected and what's being communicated but the euro has been much more interesting we have been um, quite bearish on the prospects for the euro area and, and consequently in contrast to the to the us dollar which has been pretty rampant of late but the euro's had a pretty good innings so far this week i think it's up about one and a half percent or so on the week so far uh, and it has come as european central bank is likely to start raising interest rates in july and exit sub-zero territory by the end of September, according to Christine Lagarde, the president. And yeah, if we were to, I think in previous months, we've talked about timelines with these things. The ECB have always been like, you have to get your binoculars out to look down the track of how, when are they going to raise rates? But now they're talking about this summer. Yeah. I mean, always the ECB are about a million miles behind, but, but uh, you know, finally they're kind of going, all right, maybe we should think about raising rates as well. I think we had this huge divergence between monetary policy outlooks where when the Fed were getting super hawkish, you know, a few months back, the ECB was still going, no, we're not, probably won't raise rates this year. And that's where you've got this big divergence where then you see big shifts in exchange rates. And that's why the euro dollar was plummeting, you know, multi, multi-year lows, multi-decade lows, whatever. And, um, and everyone was going, right, this is going to hit parity. But yeah, you've had a sharp bounce, but it's still 12% down on the year. I mean, what I would say is this is a short-term euro rally, which is because we... Again, we got a little because we had to adjust our ECB expectations to be slightly more hawkish. But I don't think the ECB now accelerate that hawkishness um, like the Fed did. 
And so it depends how things pan out with regards to things like Russia. And because don't forget, Europe is obviously way more vulnerable from an energy sort of dependency point of view. And so if that if that's more prolonged, then what's going to happen is the economic situation in Europe is going to turn over faster and we're going to get a, a deeper recession in Europe, which means the ECB won't be able to hike as much as the Fed and maybe they have to reverse it or maybe they don't even get to above zero, but it depends how quickly the economy turns, right? But I, I think personally that this is a short-term relief rally in the euro because it's sold off so heavily already. You're getting a bit of profit taking. I don't think this changes the broader trend, which, you know, this currency pair euro dollar has been trending down for 18 months. And I don't think this is the end of the downtrend. So I, I'm, I'm still in camp parity. I still think we get parity in the euro dollar, maybe towards the end of the year, is my view. So short term banks for me. And with these different uh, geographic areas, we talked about the US, talked about the UK, and now Europe. Is there any kind of like geopolitical play here between timings of peak inflation, timing of recession, and then exiting and recovery? Yeah. In your mind? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the US, as usual, is the most resilient economy, I would say because it's, it's a giant, self-reliant, rich, developed economy. And so it's much more, it's self-reliant is key. And, and, and because, you know, it's, you know, it's, I'd say as a, an economic system, it just, I guess, because it's, I don't know how best to describe it, like, because you've got, it's a federal system, right? So you've got this one economy that has one government and one central bank, okay? And everyone's pulling together. You're all kind of on the same page. Not like Europe, where you've got nine, well, the Eurozone, let's say specifically, where you've got 19 governments and you've got one central bank and these economies are so different. Uh, but you've got to have one monetary policy that kind of fits all of them. So if the ECB do start hiking rates, well, the likes of Germany might go, well, actually, great. You know, we, we need it. But it might be that some of the, the smaller, uh, less resilient, weaker economies actually find interest rate hikes uh, are actually really negative. So I think it's just harder. Europe's less, it's, it's less nimble. Um, so I just think the US economy will probably have the shallowest recession. Uh, the US consumer's probably in the strongest position. And... So therefore, yeah, I mean, the Fed are super hawkish as a result. That's why the dollar has been strengthening for these reasons. Um, I think that, yeah, if we, if look, I think it's, a, it's a, obviously the recession timing is the one, one of the key unknowns. What's happening right now this week, well, what's happening this morning? I mean, stock markets are rallying here at the moment. But prior to today, what we did see was actually bond markets um, were rallying. Um, which was actually people starting to, because bonds have been selling off all year, like stocks have, and that's because inflation is very negative for um, bond prices. But what investors, it seemed like, first part of this week, it seemed like investors were now buying bonds because they're kind of seeing past the inflation problem now. And now their, their key concern now is not inflation, it's actually now the recession. 
for inflation kind of forces. And obviously, the one of the best, one of the cleanest ways we're going to get over this inflation crisis is if demand drops via a recession, and you just hope that that demand drop isn't too severe. But it's it's a, it drops enough that prices cool. You know, we get back down to inflationary levels that are kind of more sustainable and conducive for, you know, sustainable economic growth. But, but yeah, you know, I'd say the US is in a much better place and Europe's proximity to and uh, the, the Russia-Ukraine situation, and the, the, it's obviously more exposed, um, I think will have an overall, you know, overriding negative impact, relatively speaking. And that's why I think the ECB won't be able to hike as much. And in the end, I still think parity as a result. Okay. And on that call, we'll, we'll wrap it up. And so I should say this also at the beginning of the episode, but I always forget. So I'll say at the end, if you're listening on Spotify or Apple, please do leave us a, a rating. It helps us get a, the show out to as many people as possible. If you're watching on YouTube, the actual video recording, then uh, feel free to subscribe to the channel. My macro outlook goes out every Sunday for the week ahead as well. You might find find useful but thanks Piers and, and thanks everyone for listening and uh, see you next week have a good weekend ACAST powers the world's best podcasts Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>